call to worship this morning is Psalm 148. God calls us to worship. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights above. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His heavenly hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the skies. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. He set them in place forever and ever. He gave a decree that will never pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all ocean depths, lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do His bidding, you mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and flying birds, kings of the earth and all nations, you princes and all rulers on earth, young men and maidens, all men, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted. His splendor is above the earth and the heavens. He has raised up for His people a horn, the praise of all His saints of Israel, the people close to His heart. Praise the Lord. Sing God's praises. Hymn number 76. I have two texts for our Scripture in this morning. The first is from Acts 8, beginning in verse 9. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 9. This is the speech that Stephen gave to the Sanhedrin. And remember, in the context here, Stephen is making a defense based on Israel's history with his dispute with the Jews who believed that Stephen always spoke against the holy place, that is, the land of Israel. And when Stephen gives his response here, he's talking about God's presence with his people wherever they are. So our scripture reading is from Acts 7, beginning in verse 9 and going to verse 16 for our first selection. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our fathers could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. Our second scripture reading is from John chapter 6, being in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On Him, God the Father has placed His seal of approval. Then they asked Him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the One He has sent. So they asked Him, What miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you, what will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life, he who comes to me will never go hungry, 
and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Amen. Bo, can you lead us in prayer? Today we come to the last story in Genesis regarding Joseph. And I decided to pick this story as a way of continuing in our sermon series in God's Garden because we have the idea of Genesis coming to full completion with Joseph. Now, a lot of Christians recognize that the story of Joseph is very typological and prophetic of Jesus Christ. And we can see in the story of Joseph many things that are prophetic of what's to come with Jesus Christ. That's very obvious in certain aspects of the story. But what I found in in my study of Joseph is that once we understand the full work of Christ and what actually the full covenantal story that, that Christ fulfills in the New Testament, we actually can see more things in the life of Joseph that are prophetic that many, many Christians actually miss. So there are tremendous parallels between the life of Joseph and the life of Jesus. And what this means is that the story of Joseph really tells the story of Jesus in the Gospel in pictures, in types, and shadows. And so we see once again that Genesis teaches the Gospel of Jesus Christ, a very important, a very important lesson that modern Christians need to understand. So what I want to do in today's sermon is to give you an overview of the life and the lessons that Joseph offers and show you how what happens in the life of Joseph is actually a consummation of the book of Genesis. Just as the full life and the full work of Christ is a consummation of the end of our Bible. Now, if that's the case, then the story of Joseph is a fitting consummation to the book of Genesis. And that means that really what you have here in the book of Genesis is a miniature form of the rest of the Bible. Because you have here the beginning of the Bible in a garden. Adam and Eve fell. You have the fall. You have the casting out into the wilderness. And you have the rise of this Messiah who's to come in the book of Genesis. Joseph, who comes up and we see all kinds of things going on in his life. And then he brings basically salvation to the world. We'll see that in the way Joseph's life plays out. And then at the very end of the book of Genesis, we find that God's people are brought back into a garden, the Garden of Goshen. And all of this, of course, is like a miniature form of the entire Bible. So what we have here, and what I believe is, is Genesis, is actually a miniature of the Bible that the children of Israel had while they were in Egypt many hundreds of years before the time of Moses. And I believe that's really important to understand. A lot of people make it very clear that they have to believe, that conservatives so-called have to believe that Moses wrote Genesis. I actually don't believe that. I believe, I believe Genesis was written many hundreds of years before Moses ever came on the scene. Then I think that this idea of the consummation of Genesis will help you see the logic of that as well. Now, I gave you a handout that sort of gives you a, a big picture here of from Abraham to Joseph and how these lifespans, and we've talked about the lifespans a little bit before as covenant statements about the line of the woman the, who, remember, Eve is the mother of all living. And we see that there are two lines in Genesis, the line of the woman and the line of, the, of, of Satan or the serpent. And you have these as covenant lines. And we see that in, in Genesis, lifespans are only given to the covenant line. And there's a very important spiritual reason for that is because the covenant line are the only ones who have life. Cain, being cast out from the presence of God, is dead. His line is dead. And so there are no lifespans given to Cain. Well, you have these, these numerological patterns going on, particularly with Abraham through Joseph. Well, if you look at the numbers... You see the numbers are actually going downhill. The lifespans are getting shorter as we get to, jo- to Joseph. And a lot of people think that these are biological things. So where after the flood, you have these biological lifespans that get shorter and shorter because this great big change in planet Earth. I actually don't believe that. I believe that there's a covenant understanding 
of these lifespans. And what you have here is a numerological representation or a countdown to the coming of Messiah at the conclusion of Genesis. And you can see that with Abraham. He lived 175 years, which was, is seven times five squared. And in ancient, in ancient documents, there are lots of numerological patterns that play, play their way out, not only in biblical ancient documents, but also in ancient Sumer documents. And I think this is what's going on in Genesis as well. Isaac lived 180 years, which is five times six squared, 36. And then Jacob lived 147 years, which is three times 49, which is seven squared. So there's a pattern to these lifespans. If you look at the pattern, there's actually a countdown. And so Joseph is basically the addition of all of the squared items of Abraham to Jacob. He's 25 plus 36 plus 49, symbolizing that in Joseph is all of his fathers. So these lifespans are actually very important and this gives you kind of a big a big numerological look at the book of Genesis and I think that that kind of tips off what's going on with the life of Joseph. He's really the Messiah to come. We see that with the last story in Genesis. Now I've made the point through, the original, uh, through this garden series that the original garden, Adam and Eve were made both naked and they felt no shame. And this of course symbolizes their innocence but I think this also symbolizes their immaturity. They were like babies. They were God's children. They were brought into this world naked and without shame. And we should have that visual image of young children for Adam and Eve. And God gave them a a very simple command. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what I've emphasized in this series to the God's garden is that God is bringing his children to maturity a little bit at a time. We see that kind of with Adam in the garden. He kind of gives, God kind of gives him more stuff as, he, as we go. But then you have Cain, who's told that sin is crouching at his door and desires to have him. But you, that's Cain, should need to master or have dominion over it. So you see this maturity theme with Cain. His command in his garden was given in such a way that he was to basically discern what was right and wrong about his brother Abel. He was to have mastery or dominion over sin. Of course, he fell and he, and he killed his brother Abel. And we see this theme of repetition of these different temptations through the book of Genesis. Noah has his temptation. His temptation is not the fruit of the tree, it's the fruit of the vine. And he becomes drunk. And in his tent, he becomes naked, just like Adam and Eve in the garden. And sin enters his family as well. And the last time we looked at the fall of Abraham, the temptation to fall of Abraham, Sarah comes to Abraham as a, a new Eve and says, even though God had promised Abraham that he was going to have a son, Sarah says, no, come listen to what I'm going to tell you. Take this woman, Hagar, and raise a family through her. And so you have this temptation and fall of Abram. And of course, after that temptation and fall, he's renamed Abraham, signifying redemption and given the circumcision covenant. So we have this particular parallel and repeating theme to the book of Genesis where these patriarchs are brought to maturity and they're given different temptations to give them more experience that actually brings them to more maturity. And we see the same thing happening over and over again. The patriarchs are falling. They keep falling. When God put the temptation in front of them, they keep falling until Joseph. And this is where Joseph is so important in the story of Genesis because that's what happens in the life of Joseph. Joseph is given a temptation as well. Remember? Potiphar's wife. We'll see how that works as well. And in the case of Joseph, what we have is someone who succeeds in his temptation and he is exalted as a result of that and given dominion and authority over the entire world. So, 
This theme of maturity is really what's going on in the book of Genesis, ultimately coming out to, to Joseph. So I'm going to basically read some portions of the story of Joseph. And what I'll do is, as we read through these things, you want to follow along in your Bible, I'll point out some of the typological significance in connection with the, the line of Jesus Christ and the, and the time of Jesus Christ and what he does as a fulfillment of the life of Joseph. And I, I should also say here, I've kind of skipped over Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau a little bit in the story, but you really have kind of the same pattern applying to them. In the case of Isaac and Rebekah, if it wasn't for righteous Abimelech, king of the Philistines, then the covenant line very well could have been corrupted by a Philistine taking Rebekah as a wife. So even Isaac has problems in his life that he doesn't you know, man up to his responsibilities as the head of his household and take care of Rebekah. He basically lacked faith and he feared that the Philistines would kill him because of the beauty of Rebekah. So we have kind of a, kind of a problem there with Isaac and Isaac in his life. And again, God stepped in and rescued the situation just like he always does. And then there is Jacob. Jacob is a mess from pretty much the beginning. I mean, he does see the ladder in a, in a dream. He sees the ladder between heaven and earth at Bethel, yet he gets hoodwinked into marrying two women. And in spite of this, Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord for a blessing, and his name is known from then on as Israel. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Jacob, supplanter, the one who wrestles with the angel of the Lord, is called Israel from that point on, because Israel has a good relationship, a loving family relationship with God himself. So there is something in Jacob, even with all of his faults, that is is very significant for the coming history of Israel as the personality of God's people. So here we get to the story of Joseph. Let's pick it up in Genesis chapter 37. Joseph's dream. Joseph is a youth. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah his father's wives, and he brought their fathers a bad report about them. Right there, Joseph is a shepherd. And that is a very big theme in covenant history because remember, Abel was a shepherd. Jacob was a shepherd. Abraham was a shepherd. Jacob was a shepherd. And then later we think about what's going to come in, in Israel's history. Moses is a shepherd. He learns how to take care of God's people. David is a shepherd. And of course, we get to Jesus Christ who is the good shepherd. So we start seeing here this, this theme that goes both directions in the Bible. Now Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So we have here a symbol of Jesus Christ, the beloved son whom God loved, who was who is distinguished by God with his authority to do miracles and healing. And, of course, Jesus Christ's own brothers hated him for that, for the very same reasons that we see Joseph's brothers hate Joseph. And, by the way, this ornamentation of the robe, we see a couple places where that's just a mark of, of importance. In Second Samuel 13, with the daughters of Zion, the daughters of the king, wear ornamented colored robes. In Judges, we see various the idea of the spoils of Sisera's war, where the children of Israel carry off ornamented robes and become God's, God's special, special marked people. Continue in verse 5. 
Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Of course, that's the authority of Christ is being pictured here. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream and this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now I want to stop here because I think this dream of Joseph sets a huge theme or at least illuminates a huge theme that we get to in the rest of the Bible. Notice that Jacob knows exactly what the dream means. We talk about Joseph interpreting dreams. Well, Joseph knew the meaning of this dream. The sun, moon, and stars bowing down, you know, 11 stars and the sun and moon bowing down to Joseph. How can this be? How can your mother and your father and your 11 brothers bow down to you? I mean, it's almost like Jacob has this metaphor on the brain, so to speak. He knows exactly what he's talking about. He knows the symbolism there. And notice that the symbolism is that the 11 other sons of Israel are stars. Isn't that interesting? That's the way the scriptures are presenting this. And actually, if you go back, I think I know where this comes from. This comes from the promises to Abraham, doesn't it? Because what was the promise to Abraham? Your descendants, these, these guys right here, are going to be as the stars of the sky and as the dust of the earth. Two promises. Well, that sets the context for everything that's to come in the Bible because what you have here is the stars and the dust, the heavens and the earth. And a lot of people, you know, when they get to the New Testament, they start, it starts talking about the new, the new heavens and the new earth and how the old heavens and the old earth are going to pass away they don't understand where these associations come from. The twelve children of Jacob are the stars of the sky. And this shouldn't be that hard for us to understand because, you know, Hollywood talks in this kind of language all the time, right? What about the movie stars and the glitz and the glamour and they're bright and they're shiny? Well, it's a perversion of, of actually what we have here in Genesis. The true stars of the sky, covenantally speaking, are God's people, the children of Abraham. They're the ones who shine. Of course, we're talking covenantally, not biologically. We're not talking about big thermonuclear explosion. But this is the way it works all the way through the Bible because Daniel prophesies a time in Daniel 12 when God's people will become wise and shine like the stars in Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 12. And then, and then Paul, when we get in Philippians 2, he says to the believers, you shine in a dark place like stars of the universe. All that's coming back from Abraham's promise. That's, that's Abraham's promise. The true children of Abraham shine like stars of the universe. And so, when we start talking about this heavens and earth language, um, I believe going back to Genesis 1-1, all the way through the Bible, we're talking about the land of God's people, the heavens and the earth. So, it's a better way of understanding how this heavens and earth language, I mean, we can see the timing of the heavens and new heavens and new earth in the New Testament fits with the new covenant. But what we really have here is a new covenant people, heavens and earth. We have lots of things like the New Jerusalem in the New Testament, the New Temple, the New Priesthood, the New Circumcision. All this stuff is being made new 
and all is covenantally defined. And so when we get to Revelation 12, turn with me to Revelation 12, we can understand exactly what's going on here. All this is coming from Genesis. And these kinds of passages confuse American Christians because they don't know the covenant context where all these things come from. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun. And by the way, prophetically speaking, the sun is prophetic of the Messiah. So this is the woman, the church, clothed with Christ. Okay? With a moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Where's that coming from? That's coming from Joseph's dream. 12 stars. Israel. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. Enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. Now think in terms of the star imagery. What, what's John talking about here? Is he talking about asteroids falling on planet earth? That's the way people read this, literally. No, he's talking about Israel who had apostatized and had basically been deceived by the dragon, by the serpent. And those stars fell from the sky to the earth. They fell out of the covenant. You see various languages like this, the heavens being rolled up as a scroll. Right? Well, who's populating the heavens? You are. God's people from this very point on are populating the heavens. They're shining like stars in dark place. And so we see the sky rolling up as a scroll in the book of Revelation and other prophetic texts. It's talking about old covenant Israel being wrapped up and a new heavens and new earth being made. God's people. And so these things are all, these things are all symbolic. And Jacob understood that right away when he heard Joseph's dream. So when we talk about the, the heavens and the earth, think covenant. Don't think planet earth. Think covenant because that's what it's all about. Now, his brothers, verse 12, his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. And so what we have here is the father sending the son to his brothers. Very significant. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the field and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? And so Joseph is searching out his brothers. They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. And then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Of course, the parallel is pretty obvious because when the Pharisees saw who Jesus was and the power and authority that he had, the Pharisees also plotted to kill him, as we see in places like Matthew twelve fourteen. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him away and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty and there was no water in it. So you have here Joseph thrown into a pit. It's essentially what it is. And if you look at um, various ways that the Old Testament talks about the pit, we're actually talking about symbolically death here. He's being thrown into death. And as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up 
and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And so his brothers agreed. So what do you have here? You have Joseph's brothers handing Joseph over to the Gentiles. Just like Jesus Christ. Because what did the Jews do to Jesus? They took Jesus and they handed him over to Pilate. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Of course, Jesus Christ was sold for silver as well. Pretty obvious one. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood, and they took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. Notice that the blood, the scapegoat blood, is taken back to the father. That is very significant when we get to the book of Hebrews and talks about Jesus taking his blood. He was the scapegoat for the sins of the world into the presence of the Father and purifying the temple. That's actually significant in the story of Joseph. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, In mourning I will, will I go down to grave to my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, this is the continuation of the story, the Midianites sold Joseph to Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. And what's interesting about this story of Joseph, I don't have time to go into this, the very next chapter, Genesis 38, starts talking about Judah. It's, it's one of those really strange stories, Judah and Tamar, about Judah's history. And we see here, actually I think it's very prophetic that we're talking about Judah as a specific individual because when we get to the land, in the time of Christ, we have Judah in the land, of course, with the other tribes represented symbolically, but you have Judah being talked about. And here you have Judah, in verse 2, goes and met a daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and lay with her, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. And so the apostasy of the idolatry of first century Jerusalem and Judah is actually being done symbolically here in the story of Judah. So notice right here that we have the story of Judah separate from his brothers long before the divide in the kingdom. And, it's, and I think it's just an interesting detail in the book of Genesis. Don't have time to get into that, but that's one of the things. So then we pick up the story of Joseph in chapter 39, and here we have the temptation of Joseph. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master, when his master saw that he, the Lord was with him and the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had with Joseph in charge and he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. This is experience. 
Joseph is getting experience in the household of Potiphar. Now Joseph was well built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. And interesting, there's a, there's a reversal here of a theme that's going on in Genesis with the patriarchs. In, with the case of Isaac and with the case of Abraham, there were pagan people after their wives because of their beauty, Rebecca and Sarah. Here we have a pagan who's coming after Joseph. And Joseph, of course, succeeds in his trial. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her, even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. So what does Joseph do in the face of his temptation? He flees. What Eve should have done back in the garden, what Abraham should have done with Sarah, he flees from temptation. And when she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. And when he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. So we have a false charge with Joseph, similar to the false charges we see with Jesus Christ. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home, and then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me, but as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger, and Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. No defense. Joseph offers no defense in terms of the charge, at least not recorded here. And that's, of course, just like Jesus Christ as well, who stood silent. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those who held in prison and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. So you have this repeating theme in the life of Joseph. His faithfulness was rewarded and he continues to rise to the top in whatever situation that he finds himself in. Then we have chapter 40 where we actually have this, this idea of dreams and the interpretation of dreams comes back from Joseph's childhood. And we'll pick it up in, in verse 12. This is an important parallel. Joseph tells the interpretation of the dream. This is what it means, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift you up, lift up your head and restore you to your position and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. For I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews. And even here, I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. Notice that Joseph makes a prophecy and it comes to pass exactly when he said it would. In three days, it comes to pass. Of course, that's exactly like Jesus Christ who made a prophecy which came to pass exactly when he said it would. Then in chapter 41, we have the exaltation of Joseph. 
When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile. And when out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. Then Pharaoh awoke. We find out he's given another dream to confirm this. And two dreams are really the same dream. And we find out that finally the cupbearer remembered Joseph. And when Pharaoh brought all of his wise men before him to interpret the dream, nobody could, but the cupbearer remembered Joseph and told Pharaoh about him. And of course, that brought Joseph into the presence of Pharaoh. And so what we have here is this maturing of, of Joseph throughout the story and where everything that's going on in his life is preparing him for what comes next. And in verse 37, we hear Pharaoh's response to, to Joseph's explanation of the dream and Joseph's advice about what to do in terms of the future. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, Can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? That is significant because in the book of Genesis, there is only one patriarch mentioned in whom has the Spirit of God. And it's said by Pharaoh. And of course, what we see here is a, a, a prefigurement of Jesus Christ, whom Isaiah talked about as having the Spirit of God upon him. And Jesus read from Isaiah the prophet when he began his ministry. Since, then Pharaoh said to Joseph in verse 39, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. And so you have the exaltation of Joseph after he successfully resisted temptation. And so we have this famine that takes place. Another, another significant aspect of this is verse 46 of chapter 41. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. Jesus Christ was 30 years old as well when he started his ministry. And so what we have here is the association of Pharaoh being symbolic of God himself. And so when Joseph is ascending to the right hand of Pharaoh, what we have here is is actually a, a symbol of what's to come with Jesus Christ who ascends to the right hand of God himself. And so this famine goes and takes place and you have Joseph collecting all the food, too much to number as the sand of the seashore. And also, Pharaoh gives Joseph a wife. Verse 44, Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift a hand or foot in all of Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zephaniah Paniah, which actually means revealer of secrets, savior of the world. That's what those two names mean. And gave him Asenah, daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went through the land of Egypt. Now what's significant about that? It's an, it's an arranged marriage, first of all. And we see something very similar to in the New Testament with the parables of the marriage being arranged by God the Father. The, the marriage of the Lamb, the bride and the bridegroom being arranged by the Father. We see something very similar in the New Testament. But this is an Egyptian woman that he married. And two tribes of Israel come from her. Now, so what we see here in the story of Joseph is that two of the tribes of Israel come from, Egyptian, from an Egyptian woman, the wife of Joseph. There are foreigners in the 12 tribes of Israel. It was never about a particular race or bloodline because you have an Egyptian mother to two tribes of Israel. That's very, very significant. We see also when Israel comes out of Egypt, they take Egyptians with them as part of their, as part of their nation. 
So again, it never was about biological descent or bloodlines or anything like that. And then we find here the end of the abundance comes in verse 53. The seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end and the seven years of famine began just as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the other lands but in the whole land of Egypt there was food. And when all Egyptians began to feel the famine the people cried out to Pharaoh for food and then Pharaoh told all the Egyptians go to Joseph and do what he tells you. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the countries came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the world. Verse 6 of the next chapter. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the one who sold grain to all its people. And that is significant because he was the one who dispensed the bread of life. Only Joseph had the bread of life in his famine. And so if they, those who refused to come to Joseph, they're the ones who starved. Those who wanted to live had to come to Joseph. And the story goes on to say that Joseph saved his brothers and foreigners together. It's not just about Joseph. And we find here that how his brothers come back, up to, come back down to Egypt to buy grain. And Joseph is, is uh, saving them through this famine. He also saves all the other nations as well which is very typological of the New Testament where you have Jesus Christ who saves his brothers, the faithful children of Abraham, and the Gentiles bring the Gentiles back in as well. The two become one. And toward the end of the story, we see models of gospel grace. Chapter 43. Remember how Joseph's brothers conspired to kill him? Well, here you have Joseph conspiring to bless his brothers. And this is really gospel grace. Notice in verse 16, when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Take these men to my house, slaughter an animal, and prepare dinner. They are to eat with me at noon. So you have a great banquet that's set before his brothers with Joseph. And notice how his brothers keep thinking the worst about it. At the end of verse 18, they say, they say he wants to attack us and overpower us and seize us as slaves and take our donkeys. I mean, why, is, why is that important? I mean, it's like, well, if you're going to sleep, seize, seize the slaves, why would you care about your donkeys? Well, you need your donkeys to carry the food back to Canaan. So you can't carry food by hand, so they need their donkeys. And here, the parallel in verse 24, the steward took the men into Joseph's house, gave them water to wash their feet, and provided fodder for their donkeys. So this is just gospel grace. When, when these brothers think that their worst is going to happen to them, we find out that Joseph feasts and drinks freely with, with them in this Egyptian scenario. Of course, they come back a second time and then Joseph makes himself known in chapter 45. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. And Joseph answers in true gospel form, just like what we see with the apostles in Acts and how they tell, talk about how the crucifixion had to take place in God's plan in order to save the world. So we have here Joseph saying in verse 8 of chapter 45, So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of Egypt. And actually it happens again because they get scared after their father dies, after Israel dies in chapter 50, verse 15. And Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, and they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back? for all the wrongs we did to him. And so they sent word to Joseph that their dad told them to forgive them. So they're still worried about it even after Israel dies. 
And we see here in verse 19 of chapter 50, But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Gospel grace in the book of Genesis with the story of Joseph. Joseph is really showing what grace looks like. So the story of Joseph is the perfect ending of Genesis. Almost perfect. There is one problem. The land of Goshen is where they all end up, in the, the fattest part of Egypt, a garden. They end up in a garden. So we have the beginning in a garden and we have the ending of the garden. But the problem is Goshen is still in Egypt. It's not the promised land. So it's a temporary garden. We can see that very clearly in terms of the promise given to Abraham. But here's the problem. You know, whenever the patriarchs went to Egypt, before Joseph, there were always big problems. And here you have these covenant promises that were given to the patriarchs and to Joseph, and yet they're going to Egypt. How are those promises going to be maintained? What happens if the children of Israel become assimilated with Egypt and become intermarried with the Egyptians? What happens then? And so Joseph actually comes up with a plan about how to maintain the, the identity of Israel. Verse, chapter 47, because Joseph knew that shepherds were detestable in the sight of the Egyptians, Joseph tells his brothers, tell Pharaoh that you're all shepherds and they won't want to live with you at all. And that's how they get the land of Goshen, actually, originally. Chapter 47, continuing actually from 46, this is kind of the story as the story goes. Pharaoh asked the brothers, what is your occupation? Your servants are shepherds, they replied to Pharaoh, just as our fathers were. They also said to him, we have come to live here a while because the famine is severe in Canaan and your servants' flocks have no pasture. So now please let your servants settle in Goshen. Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you and the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. Let them live in Goshen. And if you know any among them with special ability, put them in charge of my own livestock. So now you have Joseph being lord of the land, bringing his brothers up to reign with him over Pharaoh's own livestock. Very significant. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob and and presented him before Pharaoh. So we have all these things going on, but there is, and that's how really Israel maintains its own separate covenantal status in the land of Goshen, in the land of Egypt, by using the cultural situation and the wisdom of Joseph applied to the situation. So what are the lessons of Joseph? The first one that is obvious is that by the power of the Spirit of God, it is possible to resist temptation. In fact, that's what God is doing in our lives. He's showing us these different temptations and building maturity in us so that we can resist temptation and avoid sin. That's what God's people do when they are mature and disciplined like Joseph. And the consequence of that is that God raises the obedient to positions of dominion and authority. Look around and see why Christians are the tail and not the foot. It's because Christians have not learned the discipline of resisting temptation and avoiding sin. There's a link between that. God desires and blesses those who resist temptation and sin. And He brings His people to maturity for this very end. And from the story of the Bible goes from here. What we have in Genesis is God dealing with individuals, the patriarchs. And actually from here on, we're going to have the same story with the children of Israel, the nation in the land of Egypt. And the same story is going to be done from here on with God's people as a whole. And so you have the man going from Adam to Joseph, maturity, in Genesis. And you have the nation going from the land of Goshen to the nation in maturity in the New Testament. Same basic theme repeated, but instead with an individual, with patriarchs, it's with the entire nation. So what you have here is a story of God raising an entire family to maturity 
the nation of his people, the true children of Abraham by faith. And we can see that with Moses in the Mosaic Covenant. It's really given while the children are underage, given as a tutor, tutor, as a schoolmaster. And so by the end of the New Testament, we see the end goal of this whole covenant story beginning in Genesis, that God's people might become adults who live with God in his eternal kingdom on earth. And that is a great theme of the Bible, God raising his family. And we can see this echoed in 1 John. I'll just close with this. 1 John chapter 1, how this, this theme of resisting temptation and dealing with sin from the very beginning of Genesis goes all the way through our New Testament as well. 1 John chapter 1, beginning verse 5, John says, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is no place, has no place in our lives. And here's the key. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, and we saw the patriarchs, they fell over and over and over again. If anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if, anybody, if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. We've had this command from the beginning. That's what John says from Genesis. Walk in him. And this is a new command because Jesus Christ shows up and changes everything in the covenant. So that's the consummation of Genesis. We've seen how Genesis in God's garden actually matches and, and, and fits very well with the rest of the scriptures. So let's pray. Our Father, we thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us. We thank you for calling us and giving us the light of your life in us. We might shine in a dark place. We pray that you place your glory upon us. Give us strength and wisdom to be mature in your kingdom. May we judge the right from the wrong and choose the good over the evil. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.